0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome to another episode of Adding Context. Today I am talking to Mr. Kevin Ioli. Kevin, why don't you go ahead and introduce who you are and what you do.
1: Hey there, Mike. I um, appreciate you having me on. I am uh, the combat sports writer for Yahoo Sports, which means that I get to cover boxing and MMA, uh, which I love and I have loved doing for a long time. I've been at Yahoo since 2007, uh, but I actually started covering – I had a full-time uh, job as a sports writer when I was in college back in Pittsburgh. And I started covering fights because nobody else really wanted to cover fights and I loved it. So I said, let me do that. That's something I'll do. Um, and I covered, uh, my first major fight was, I believe it was 1980. It was either 80 or 81, but Larry Holmes, uh, heavyweight title defense. I was going to college in Pittsburgh back in the day and Larry Holmes fought, uh, a guy named Ronaldo snipes. And it turned out to be a better fight than a lot of people thought it might be. Um, and that was my first major event. And I, I pretty much been covering, uh, uh the fight game ever since uh started i picked up uh, mma in uh, 2000 and so i've been doing it for 20 years now and loving every minute of it yeah
0: um was it the job itself that brought you to vegas from Pittsburgh, or did you have uh, kind of go out looking for the job
1: no actually i got really lucky um my wife is a physician and she finished her medical residency. And when uh, she finished, she was looking for a job. So we were going to go wherever, um, she landed. Cause, uh, um, we figured a physician would uh, be better off than a, than a journalist. So, um, she got job offers in multiple places. And we came to, uh, Nevada because there was two newspapers out here at the time. Uh, the other places where she was offered jobs, uh, had uh, just one one newspaper so we kind of figured this was the best place to go and i got lucky i got hired i did not have a job when i got on here but within uh 48 hours of being in nevada i got hired uh at the las vegas review journal and um so it was like i almost never missed a beat
0: <laughs> well i mean you had a enough of the background at least covering boxing and you know vegas is quite well known for its uh promotion so i mean it was kind of a good place for you to go i guess
1: yeah, it was awesome. I mean, uh, you know, obviously Las Vegas known as, uh, fight capital of the world. And, you know, I got, I got here at a time when there were so many, uh, so many huge fights going on in the, bo- you know, MMA wasn't, uh, thing at that point and there was so much uh, boxing uh, so it was a great time and um, I got to do a lot of good stuff and and meet a lot of good people so uh, it's just been a you know a really blessing I mean because it's something that I love and something that I you know I like writing about sports but I love the way the whole fight game you know kind of rolls and so it's uh, you know there's some frustrations in it when uh, some of the crazy things that happen as you know but uh, it's it's been uh, a lot Lot of fun and I've really enjoyed it uh, for the most part the whole time.
0: Yeah, you've uh, I mean covering it as long as you have, I'm sure you have had some really good conversation you know the the, the premier boxers. Um, what are your uh, just to kind of jump forward a little bit? What's your thoughts on Tyson's exhibition with uh, Jones in a few months?
1: Yeah, you know it's I mean it's kind of sad in a way that he's coming back. You know because why does he feel the need to do that? And I always look at it and I say you know, fighters in their 50s don't need to be doing this kind of thing. And it's it's never a smart idea, right? Um, you know, to get hit in the head when you're, you know, 50 something years old. And so, you know, from that standpoint, you know, I don't like it. Um, but I understand, you know, that, at least it's going to be as safe as possible, right? And you're, he's fighting an age-appropriate opponent. And Roy, you know, both of them plus fifty. Um, they're going to wear bigger gloves, you know. So it's, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. The Oscar De La Hoya thing might be the one that's a little more uh, crazy, uh, if he in fact goes through with what he's saying he's going to do.
0: I'm not familiar with that. What is? What is he going to jump back in the ring for an exhibition or yeah. for an actual fight?
1: He said, you know, he said the other day that he was coming back um, and that uh, he wanted to fight, quote, any of the top guys at 154 or 160. And when you read, you know, you look at what he said and you read between the lines, it's almost like he's saying he would be willing to fight Canelo. That and that's kind of scary. You know, <laughs> I mean, it would be an insane thing for him to fight any of the top guys. But just look if you look at this quote and you know uh, look what he said. Um, you know he it seems to me like you know he's leaving the door open to a fight with Canelo, and I just think that you know that is really scary and a mistake. But Oscar's forty seven; he's back in training, uh, going to start sparring next week, and uh, you know we'll see where he goes with it.
0: I, uh, yeah, that's that sounds a little insane. At least with uh with Tyson and Jones, they I didn't realize Jones was as old as he is. I thought he was a little yeah. younger, but uh. At least, as long as you're putting the precautions in. Um, What are some of your more memorable interviews that you've had?
1: Oh man, I've had so (laughs) many. You know, it's like uh, you think about it. I mean, you mentioned it um, before that I, you know, I've had a chance to interview just about every big name in boxing, and you know, I go back and Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard and Tyson and Holyfield and you know everybody in boxing, Hagler, you know, um, Hearns, you know, the whole group of them onto the, you know, onto the current guys, Floyd Mayweather. um, And then the same, you know, the same thing um, in MMA. And so, you know, hard for me to to say, well, this interview or that interview, the thing that I always remember is the things that happened. You know, I was there for the fan man incident uh, when the guy on the hang glider came in during the heavyweight title fight between Riddick Bowe and uh, Evander Holyfield and crashed into ringside (laughs) and So um, Louis Farrakhan was sitting at ringside and his bodyguards thought that this was an attack on Farrakhan. Oh, so this guy that, uh, that um, crashed into the you know ropes and he was sort of caught in the ropes. So he was hanging upside down. His legs were in the ropes. And he was like directly in front of Farrakhan. The bodyguards for Farrakhan went over and started pummeling him. Oh, uh, hitting one guy was hitting him on the head with a phone. I mean, it was it was really crazy. Um, you know, the, obviously the night that Tyson bit uh, Holyfield, I'll never forget. A lot of crazy stories came out of that. Um, I was around for so you know I, I've I've seen a lot of good things yeah. and uh, and that's the thing I think the stories are the, the the fun part about it.
0: You plan on releasing a book on everything that you've uh, you've seen. In your time as a as a sports reporter,
1: I, I think about it every now and then, but I think you know it's. Uh, sport, I know that sports books don't sell, yeah. and unless it's like the absolute biggest, and so unless I get you know a really you know get lucky and have somebody that's a big name you know come up to me and say they want me to do their book, um, I probably won't you know. But I, I I always got stories to be the life of the party when things get dull. <laughs>
0: <laughs> would um Would you agree that Boxing has kind of lost its luster unless you're unless you're one of those premier names. It, it doesn't have the luster that it used to.
1: Well, if you mean from a media standpoint, of course, you know, um, and and that's all you know, self uh, done, I mean, you know, the, the promoters and the people who run the sport were greedy and were unethical and, and have done a lot of things that, you know, have hurt it and put it back. And, you know, that's, you know, that's something damage that can never be undone. Um, but I, I I think that there's still like, you know, it, it's cyclical, right? And we look at it and now there's a, I think we're in a golden era in terms of talent. You know, we're not necessarily in terms of, you know, public recognition, but if you go out there and you look at all these good young fighters we have, and, you know, I think led by Shakur Stevenson, who is 23 years old and just absolutely fantastic, but, you know, you have a lot of other guys at at a young age, 25 or less, you know, Devin Haney and Tate Lopez and, you know, Ryan Garcia and Daniel Dubois and, you know, a lot of guys like that. I think that there's a lot of really good, talent in the game now. We're in in an upcycle in terms of talent. And I think, you know, we're just sitting there in that spot where if, you know, if we could get somebody who could do this right and and go back and, you know, kind of, you know, earn the faith of the uh, of the public. Um, boxing could uh, could be big again, but you know it's unfortunate because all, most of the problems are self-created, and, and that's what you know. You look at it and you go, they just don't care. All they, all all so many of these people want to do is get a big score, and that's it.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's kind of what killed it for me is you know hearing the stories of people like Don King and, and the promoters that were you know really raking their fighters over the coals, and the fighters are the ones that are literally putting their bodies on the line, and just hearing the ways that they were really screwed over financially. Tyson's a perfect example of somebody that got really taken advantage of in a number of ways. Um, Shakur's a a Jersey boy, isn't he?
1: Yes, he is. He's from Newark. Makes me happy to hear that. (laughs) Uh Yeah, he's a fantastic fighter. I mean, just really a a remarkable
0: guy. Um, Most recently, you know, since you cover MMA, which I've been following since 93 when the first UFC happened and, and that really Cemented my love for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu out of the gate, um, but for the sport in and of itself, it, you know, it definitely started off uh, a little rocky with, you know, the no rules mentality. And mm-hmm. I, I I agree, and I and I appreciate the the advancements that they've made. Do you with the new judging, the hybrid system, and still getting these obnoxious, insane judge readings? You know, a good example is the other night, uh, two fifty two. Um, I think you agreed that it was a closer fight. The final fight was the closer in the scorecard than a couple of the judges had it. Do you foresee any way that they can really nail that down to make it a little more consistent?
1: Well, you know, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Like I, number one, I, I actually had Cormier win the fight. So I, you know, I, I thought it was a close fight and it was one of those fights where, you know, you could make an argument, you know, Anywhere from four to one, Steve, eight to three to two, Daniel. I don't think you could have said four to two, Dan, or right. four to one, Daniel, but you could have said, uh, you know, three to two, Daniel, and and I wouldn't argue with you too much because some of those rounds were so close. And I think, you know, um, the way MMA is, and especially in that cage, you know, a lot of it depends on where you're sitting, right? And um, and your the the view you have at it because I know sometimes you know I'll talk with my uh, colleagues after the fight and. I was at an angle where maybe I couldn't see something or I could, and I'll say, oh, I didn't see that happen. They'll say, oh, yeah, this, you know, the punch landed. It's just, you know, so there's so much uh, that, ha- you know, that's difficult about scoring. I mean, I think that there are, you know, bad scorecards, but I, I think the problem to a large degree is, you know, is a made-up and an exaggerated problem. And I think, you know, if you, if you go back and you look at it, you know, they do a better job more often than not. But even on top of that, I mean, I think, you know, what we have is people um, who are, you know, setting themselves up as the expert, like who are fan, you know. Not I'm not saying fighters so much, but say media and fans who. You know, they haven't been trained a lot of times. like, And I I know in my case, I always put my score out just because I know people like it and they want to be accountable. But I in no way, shape, or form allege that my score is quote-unquote right or anything other than my opinion. Right. And, you know, I'm tweeting as the fight goes on. Sometimes, you know, um, last week, you know, John Morgan was uh, to my left from MMA Junkie. And, you know, hey, did that punch land? I turned to him a quick second. If you turn away from the cage and you don't (laughs) see every single second, you miss something and you don't know if you're scoring that round correctly. And so I think, you know, that to me, like have there been some atrocities in scoring? Yes. Uh, But I don't think there's any better system than we have right now. And I, I have a, you know, a concern that a lot of, you know, people are setting themselves up as experts who aren't, aren't really expert uh, at judging. And then, and then, you know, further fueling this problem. I know the judges are working really hard. You know, the commissions all have, you know, um, extensive uh, remedial work that they do. California, for example, um, every other week they have, uh, they get uh, Zoom calls together, and as many people as want to get on, they do it, and they go over rounds, and they discuss, okay, how'd you score this round? This is what happened. What do you think? Why did you score it that way? In and, and an effort to try to make judging better, and, and I think, you know, that's something that shouldn't be ignored.
0: I I think that's a phenomenal thing they do. It shows that there's they're trying to improve themselves, and and I, totally mm-hmm. agree. There's people out there that, you know, they're the fans feel that because they've watched enough fights that they can do better than the people that are had that closer insight. And, and I agree that the perspective is, is vastly different, you know, from a fan sitting in front of their TV, you're only getting the angle that's given to you mm-hmm. from the camera, which granted you do get a couple different angles, but you know, somebody who's pretty much on the cage like you are, you've got a much better vantage point. Um, what are your thoughts on Goddard acknowledging his, uh, his miss of that eye poke from that Cormier fight?
1: Yeah, I think that's the best thing he can do. You know, I mean, we have seen this happen a lot. Like, if you watch a lot of fights, and I know you do, and you see, you know, there's things that happen. Sometimes a fighter gets hit low or he gets poked, and the referee clearly does not see it. And then the fighter reacts and walks away and calls time. And some referee, you know, some referees actually give them time. They don't even know. And there have been instances where, you know, it, it was a legitimate kick or, a leg, you know, it wasn't an eye poke and the guy, you know, turned away and the referee allowed that you know, person to get a break. And so, you know, it, I, I think Goddard did the right thing, number one. If you don't see it, you cannot call it. Agreed. But number two, when he knew he was wrong, you, you know, hey, for your own credibility, you have to admit, hey, I made a mistake. I didn't see that. I, I missed it. I'm sorry. And, you know, that's uh, that's the way it goes. And you go back, and I, I forget who the referee was, but, you know, many years ago, UFC 52, Frank Trigg and uh, Matt Hughes were fighting. And the welterweight title almost changed hands because the referee missed a low blow. You know, Trigg uh, hit uh, Hughes low. Right. Hughes was down. And Trigg was going to finish him. And it looked like, you know, the you know, the fight was over and Trigg uh, was going to win this win the title. And, you know, Hughes had that great comeback. He picked uh, Trigg <laughs> up, walked him across the cage, slammed him. And it was the great, you know, Textbook, dramatic. Yeah. Finish. And it was just something else. But, I mean, that we almost saw the title change here. But you, you don't want the referee to call something he doesn't see. You hope that they're in position to see those kind of things. But, like, I, I will not criticize uh, Goddard over that, you know, because he was in position. Right. I kind of felt like, I don't know if you happened to see the uh, boxing match um, uh, on DAZN was on last Saturday night. And uh, Madrimov uh, was fighting uh, Walker. And the Dreamoff drops him, you know, with a perfect punch in the uh, ninth round. Clearly a, a punch. But as he as momentum moved forward, he kind of stumbled into Walker. But he actually did not touch him. Walker went down and immediately the referee calls. Um, you know, he says that it was uh, the shoulder was what knocked him down. And, you know, all the replays showed it wasn't. And, you know, he, he did, when you looked at what happened on the fight, he was out of position. He was way on the other side of the ring and kind of behind the fighters and didn't have a good view of it. That's when you get mad at the official. But if the official's in perfect position and just doesn't see it because of, you know, whatever reason, you know, things are moving fast, you know, you, can, you can't uh, ask him to call something they didn't see.
0: Right, and I, I agree that there's times where you can clearly see the, the rep is not as engaged as they probably should be. And there's times mm-hmm. and that's, and I understand that. And I, I totally respect that there's a fine line between being too close and not close enough. And it, right. it takes time to kind of find that zone that they need to be in. So they can be in the best vantage point at all times. Um, with, uh, with that being said, do you think, see, I, I, as a fan and as somebody that's done a very minute amount of martial arts, um, the whole thing with the eye poking it, I, I kind of see that as something that can be prevented. And I think if you, and again, this could be me speaking completely out of ignorance of not being in an actual fight in that situation. But if you tell fighters to stop putting their fingers, extending their fingers or mm-hmm. while they're judging that range, that might be a way to at least mitigate some of these eye pokes. Because we've seen what some of these eye pokes do. I mean, look at Cormier's eye after that.
1: Yeah. Well, if you just go look at uh, UFC 241, uh, the second Cormier-Mietich fight, and I believe Goddard was the ref in that fight. Um, Watch that fight, and Cormier poked him, and you hear Goddard almost the entire uh, second and third round. Daniel, close your hands. Daniel, watch your fingers. You know, there was just this constant, you know, if you watch the fight again, you'll see that, this constant stream of he's warning him to do it. I just think it's so instinctive for the fighters to fight that way, right? Right. So that unless they you know make gloves you know that somehow cover the fingers you know the grapplers need the gloves open so they can use their fingers right. so it's a weird you know it's a weird scenario but i think that you know the only way really around that is you know i mean you have to take points when it happens so that you try to force them to you know to obey obey the rules um but you know if you really want to prevent it totally i think you have to do something with the fingers you know right. and that's uh, you know that's going to be be a problem right
0: Keeping on uh, on two fifty two. What what were your thoughts of that uh, the, the Kelly kimura uh, Kumaka fight? That was that I was thought pretty, that was great. Um, you know, yeah.
1: f- f- UFC debut for both guys, and they were awesome. Fight yeah. of the night. That was a <laughs> tremendous fight.
0: That was spectacular. Um, what about your thoughts on the O'Malley fight? He seemed to. Uh, do you think he broke his foot before, or I'm not even sure what his injury was? I just know that he was clearly injured with his foot, and that completely destroyed his mobility.
1: Yeah, they, um, you know, O'Malley has said, and he put a video out today, you know, of himself dancing. Um, and now he wasn't dancing uh, like he normally would, but, you know, moving around a little bit. Um, and, he, you know, when he's saying he's fine. He has not totally released what happened. Um, he did get a CAT scan on Saturday night, but I texted him multiple times. He never got a response and nobody else has gotten a response from him. So that video that he put out is all we really know but you know i thought that you know i saw it when it happened i tweeted about it immediately you know he was coming to toward me um uh, from the other side of the cage toward me and i was looking right at him i had a perfect angle and i saw his ankle roll and when that happened you know he was limping on the ankle and you know seconds later you know he was finished Uh, i mean i think it came from the calf kick that he absorbed but you know if we go back from that calf kick i thought you know Vera was winning the fight at that point you know yeah the the calf kick and then the injured ankle took away O'Malley's opportunity to win the fight but I thought Vera was doing extremely well before the kick I mean before the injury right. and so you know you have to give Vera credit for that and not look at it and say oh poor O'Malley yeah poor O'Malley you know he's been injured before and he might have been able to uh, you know uh, turn it around and win that fight but I'll tell you I- I've seen a, a lot of fights in my life And that was a fight I looked at and said, you know, this looks like a Marlon Vera victory, Um, you know, and and I didn't think O'Malley was going to win the fight uh, if he had four legs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's some fights that you want to see kind of, you want to see that definitive ending and it it, it really, it sucks when there's an inadvertent injury that kind of precipitates the
1: end of the fight kind of a little prematurely. Um, well, that's always the case. You always yeah. want to see that. You know, right. you don't want to ever want to see something, you know, because you take away. Hey, I mean, the great thing about this sport is all those oh no moments that we see. Right. And you know, that, that took that away. Yeah. You know, we couldn't, you know, hey, maybe uh, maybe Vera would have won, you know, won the fight on his own and he would have gotten a lot more. Credit for it, maybe O'Malley would have come back uh, being down two rounds in the third round, scored a dramatic KO. You know, we don't know what happened, so that's disappointing. But I thought, you know, Farah did his job. He fought really well, um, and I thought he, he showed himself to be an elite professional. And, you know, O'Malley, uh, you know, has got a lot of answers uh, to come up with here in the next uh, little bit.
0: You agree with uh, not giving the, at least an, an immediate rematch?
1: Yeah, I don't see. I I think, you know, you have to look at Sean and say, okay, you know, somebody better than Eddie Wineland, somebody worse than, um, you know, Marlon Vera. And I think, you know, that's that opens him up for a lot of potential opponents. You know, I think, uh, you know, Sean has great striking. um, And the question about him is, you know, how is he going to handle somebody who's a good jujitsu player? Um, And, you know we were starting to see that the other day, but, you know, Vera striking was causing, causing him issues. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm by no means giving up on O'Malley or, or saying he's no, not going to be the real deal. Um, I just think, you know, that at that stage of his development, that was a big, um, step up in competition for him. And he didn't, he didn't to me on that day and night look uh, like he was ready for it.
0: What, uh, what are your thoughts on Jones relinquishing the light heavyweight title and at least hinting that he's going to move up and who do you perceive him be the, uh, I guess maybe his best option for a fight as his first heavyweight fight
1: in a long time. Well, you know, I think, um, as I wrote uh, the other day, I don't think it's going to really amount to that huge of a deal, him, him giving out the title because, you know, the UFC has built itself into such a huge brand that it's almost bigger than the champions, you know? And so uh, Jones is the best fighter out there and that's going to hurt, but they've lost fighters before and it really hasn't impacted them. Right. So I don't think it's a thing that, you know, there's any one fighter that oh, you know, it's sucks for us as fans right and you know just because i'm in the media doesn't mean i'm not a fan i am and i like to see all the best guys fight each other so for us as fans you know we're missing that opportunity to see him you know one of the great fighters of all time compete in a weight class that he's dominated for nine years but having said that you know i think uh, if if and when he comes back to light heavyweight you know he's going to be a big threat i think the fight to make would be him and francis and at some point um that's the fight that you know eventually got people talking about had. Way uh for john jones and you know i think you when you look at matchups and you say you know contrasting styles and everything i mean how can you get much better than that you know a guy that's this big slugger with you know <laughs> unbelievable power against um you know this this terrific wrestler and overall mixed martial artist i mean to me that would be such a uh, fun fight uh, to see and you know I, I hope we get a chance to see it before uh, all is said and done
0: yeah, i read that article i wholeheartedly agree with that you know, while it sucks for us fans, the brand as a whole is not really going to suffer from that. They have enough star power, rising stars, current stars. Um, you know, Like you said, they've lost people throughout the years, and it really hasn't done much damage to the brand. The, the amount of uh, cards that they're able to put out that is, is evident of that. Um, I, I think I would fear for Jones, as much as I love him as a fighter and watching his skill on display... The, the power, it's just that that nasty, devastating power, and has. I really fear for Jones's life in that kind of situation. <laughs> um, what? Uh, I mean, you also got uh, probably going to butcher his, his name, but uh, Rosenstruck. He's oh yeah, Zardinia Rosenstruck. Yeah, he's a scary dude too. I mean, he's a he big is, he is. monster of a man. A- any of the the top real top heavyweights are, are ju- they're just these massive specimens of physicality that just I would not want to be in a dark alley with them but you know also knowing most fighters they're also the most humble gentle people that you know because they know what it is to take a punch and to yeah. to be humbled so yeah it's 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 interesting to see what uh what they do in the next few months
1: Um, Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun in that division. I mean, you know, the division's on an upswing, even with DC retiring, Um, a lot of good heavyweights out there. And I I think a lot of fun fights, you know, um, Derek Lewis is going to fight uh, um, Blade. So that'll be a fun fight um you know walt harris is going to fight volkov that's another really fun fight um so i i think there's a lot of good stuff in the heavyweight division next week uh, uh over and sakai is going to fight so uh, a lot of good action in the heavyweight division uh,
0: what's what's your take on the, the quietness in in the arenas now without having fans because i, I kind of like it because uh, being an, a, a fan of jiu-jitsu the way i am i I can appreciate I think maybe a little more than most fans when fights go to the ground and you, you understand what each person's trying to work for where the mm-hmm. you know the, the, the more passive fan they get bored by because they just see two guys laying on the ground and they're not they're not doing anything but again being a fan of it and, and having a more nuanced understanding of what jiu Jitsu is and, and wrestling based on my own background you know, I I kind of like not hearing the fans boo at that. What's, uh, I guess, what's your take on, on the stillness in the in the arena?
1: You know, at the end of the day, I mean, there's nothing like having fans in there. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like when D.C. walked to the cage last week. And, yeah. you know, that, that fight, you know, there was so much going on in the fight. I think that, you know, the, the electricity would have been incredible. But, you know... I, like I've been at a lot of them now and, you know, with no fans. And while I would prefer fans there, there's a, there's something, you know, you can hear the punch of the lamp when you're right there. And so I'm sure it's the same on television, you know, because the microphones are picking it up. You know, it's just like you hear what the corners are saying. And, and a lot of times, like Dustin, when Dustin Poirier fought uh, Dan Hooker, I mean, that was the most extreme example, the fighters talking to each other. You yeah. know, They talked a lot to each other during the fight, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it was amazing. And so you hear that, which you otherwise would never hear. And I think it gives you insights into what they're thinking, what's going on in the fight. And so, you know, there are things that I like about it. You know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, I would rather have the fans there because obviously that electricity just can't be beat. But, um, you know, if they're not going to be there, I think that, you know, we are getting an inter- interesting lab experiment, seeing what goes on in these pilots and also watching, you know, Daniel Cormier, what his uh, influences on these guys, you know, he calls the fights and he says something and, you know, all of a sudden the other fighters are all trying to adjust to what he just said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's definitely uh, when you have a ringside commentator, who's still actively fighting, you know, up until recently, it, it definitely gives a different perspective and, not having the fans there, you have that silence. You can appreciate a little more on the more technical end of, of what the corners are saying, you know, how they're adjusting to what they're seeing. You know, usually we only hear what they say in between rounds, but now you're literally hearing them for the full 15, 25 minutes of the fights. Right. And it's, it's a definitely a unique perspective. Um, and I, I agree that having the fans and being a fan, both being in the, in the crowd at some points and sitting on my couch watching, it's not something you can really replicate, and there's, there's definitely, as you said, the energy that you can feel the energy sometimes, even when you're, you're sitting on your couch watching, of the crowd there. And you know some of McGregor's walkouts and, and some of the other really prime, yep. prime fights, you kind of get that really amped up that, oh, wow, this is going to be really, really exciting. And, and it's, it's definitely a, a different perspective.
1: There's no doubt. I mean, that's what makes it great. I mean, that, you know, that you just love that electricity in the air when there's great knockouts The place, you know, has that, you know, the roof gets blown off, you know, so I I think, you know, you can't, uh, you can't do it. There's nothing like it.
0: So shifting gears, you're uh you're a bit of a a Golden Knights fan. Not a bit of. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to say, I'm I'm happy to see that they were very well built out of their expansion. Um, Clearly, they're. What, this is their third year in the league, and they're advancing to the and into playoffs for the third year
1: yeah no it's it's incredible i mean what they did is incredible like i been a hockey fan all my life and when i was in um well even before high school i started i became a penguin season ticket holder because i was born and raised in pittsburgh and so i used uh, i caddied and i uh, had a paper out i used that money to buy season tickets so i went with uh, one of my neighbors his father and him and we met a group of other friends of ours at the games and so i had penguin season tickets so i had been a diehard penguins fan all my life and so when the golden knights came you know to vegas i said well you know i love hockey so i'm going to go to the games i'm going to buy season tickets and this will guarantee that i'll have good tickets for when the penguins come in so i assumed that i would be uh, a penguins fan you know i never ever ever you know i thought thought that i would uh, abandon the penguins because of all the teams the penguins were my favorite team you know yeah. and, um but as i we, we got mark andre flory and so he was a penguins icon and then um You know, we had the uh, 10-1 shooting uh, that was so tragic and 58 people died at the the concert. And, you know, what the Golden Knights players did, forget the organization, which they did great. But what the players did was just remarkable. And it was right before the season started. And they created a bond with the fans here. You have to be at a game at T-Mobile Arena to see it or at practice. You know, I, I go up to practice a lot. Um, when when you could do that and i mean they would come out on the ice and the arena would be packed the practice arena it would every seat taken there would be a standing ovation when they would come out on the ice and new players would show up and the fans would be at the airport to welcome them as they're coming in and i mean it was like the, the passion that the people here have for the golden knights and but that all came out of 10-1, you know. And then yeah. I was there, and you talk about the crowd. Um, the night that uh, they made their home opener, it was their third game, and they, they were playing the Coyotes. They had opened on the road, and uh, they were 2-0. and and they're opening against the coyotes at home. And they did this unbelievable ceremony uh, before the game to honor all the victims and everything. And uh, they brought first responders out on the ice and, you know, I mean, just so much. And the emotion was so high. And then they scored like a minute into the game. And the guy that scored the goal was the only uh, Las Vegas resident on the team. And it just was like, the place went crazy. Um, And, so it's hard not to be a fan of that when you're around. And I, I turned into a Golden Knights fan even before I knew they were going to be good. You yeah. know, it was something. And so I still love the Penguins, but the Golden Knights are kind of my team.
0: Yeah, I think um, I, I I followed them since their first game. And I watched that initial, you know, the first home game they had. And it, it was extremely emotional. It was very well done. And there was a lot of excitement to it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, watching their, their first playoff game, uh, that was – I think he even more of a specter because it didn't have as much of a somber tone to it. And it was just sheer excitement of, Hey, we're doing this. And then he did really well in the playoffs. Um, there's a common bond between my favorite team and in, in devils and your team is you've got DeBoer as your coach, which I believe right. he was the coach of the devils when I met you. I think it was in 2012. He um, was the coach of the devils this current season.
1: Yeah. You know, it was crazy.
0: Yeah. Um, I believe it was 2012. I met you sitting in the seats at a Devils game. um, Yeah, going back a long time ago. Who do you uh, who do you think wins the cup? Do you think the the Knights make it to the cup this year?
1: I I, you know to me, there's four teams that I think are you know one of those four teams is going to win the cup, and I I think that's the. um tampa bay lightning the bruins um the golden knights and the avalanche i think you know that one of those four teams is going to win it you know the islanders are looking really good you know st louis has got a good team and you know you can't uh can't rule them out even though they're down to vancouver in the series you know yeah. i mean they're the trending stanley cup champions but i i just think you know when you look off from a talent level from a depth Perspective, you know, you know how the playoffs are, and is, um, as this thing goes on, it's going to test your depth. And you know, like the Golden Knights, you know, they lose, um, you know, Flurry. They got Robin Leonard. Now, you know, Flurry's healthy. He's ready to roll. Um, you know, so if Leonard something happens to Leonard, you know, other teams don't have that luxury of, you know, switching in. And, and we have an All Star as, as a backup. And I think, you know, that all that depth uh, that these teams have, I think, is going to meet, matter so much because the the playoffs are such grind and you know depth uh, of, of the organization to me is going to be you know be really important so you know it'll be curious i think those are the four teams that i think have the best shot to win it um uh, you know but we'll see
0: yeah i mean they'd play the game for a reason i've out of the east i'm looking at either islanders or the bolts and primarily because i'd like to see uh, andy green get a cup before he retires uh, yeah. the bolts have coleman who's just a uh, an electric player to watch i mean beginning of the season he had that goal where he just kind of lifted it while he was sliding on his ass. Um, he's just a real fun player. I was real sad to see him leave, but I was happy to see what the doubles got for him. And now the West, it's it's kind of up in the air with the, the top three teams. Um, I'm a little sad to see St. Louis struggling the way they are, but uh, I think I think the Knights come out. I think it's going to be a, a Knights-Bolts and a, a Knights-Islanders uh, finals, which would be great for them, especially if they win the, win the Cup. I'm a firm believer that you know the, the NHL championship is by far the hardest championship to win in any team sports because it's you know it's hockey in itself is a grueling game, but to play oh, yeah. it every other night, sometimes you know back to back, and you have to win 16 times. It's not just you know win a few games and you and you're done or, or best of seven. I mean baseball, yeah, you're playing best of seven series, but a lot of the time you're just standing around watching a ball, <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, hockey is just a physical and mental grind. I mean, it's really difficult. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you, you know, I think a lot of times the best team doesn't win in the NHL because, you know, the best team, you know, gets beat up so much that they don't have, um, you know, the, the horses to compete. But that's part of, you know um, part of, you know, identifying the best team, you know, we can, I I can say, well, the best team didn't win, but you know what the deepest, uh, team, you know, with a a huge amount of talent is what wins almost all the time. And that, you know, that is a a special gift. And, you know, I, when I look at like the golden Knights, I think they have that, you know, they have on their 30 man, uh, roster, you know, they, they have a lot of really good depth on there and they can put people in that, you know, they had, they had, um, Stevenson, uh, centering uh, Chandler Stevenson, he was centering the first line for the first couple games of the series uh, against the Blackhawks. And in game four, when everybody was healthy, he was playing the fourth line. Right. And I think that just shows the kind of depth that they have, and, and, and the ability. And I think that's you know Colorado has that, the Bolts have that, and um you know and I think certainly the you know my my opinion the Bruins have that as well. You know I like the Islanders a lot, and they are they're built for a playoff team. I just wonder if they you know when they get in um into these next couple rounds, you know do they can they score enough? Um, that's going to be an issue because I think you're going to see the other teams be able to score on them a little bit. Right. So we'll have to see what, what they can do offensively. To me, that's the big question.
0: Yeah, I think the key for, for any NHL champion is, is depth, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I, I think out of all the teams that you mentioned, the, Island, or the Avalanche is probably the second deepest team uh, alive at the moment. What are your thoughts on how both the NHL and the UFC are handling, you know, the COVID testing and everything? And they've seemed to pretty have a good beat on it. You know, their, their their track record for the last month or so, and I think they're up in almost seven or eight thousand tests and haven't had a positive. So clearly doing something right.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not in the bubble in the NHL, so I don't really know from an inside perspective. Just on the outside, it looks like the NHL has done a really good job in terms of their protocols and how they have everything ready. You know, I do know, you know, because I've been in USC's bubble quite a bit and I'll be in again tomorrow morning. um, But I kind of feel like they, they have done a fantastic job. Um, and, and, you know, when I first went, you know, there was some trepidation. You know? I'm like, is this, you know, is this going to be safe? You know, and I'm at the age that I'm, I'd be at risk. And, you know, so I, I went in cause I felt like, Hey, it's my job. I have to do it. You know, my company was great. They weren't forcing me to go if I didn't want to go. Um, you know, but I kind of felt like it just made, you know, it was too important for me not to go to it. Um, but you know, when I got in and the way they do it and everything that, you know, it is so well done and they think of literally everything. I mean, there is nothing that's left the chance. And so I feel totally safe now. You know, I go to these events and I don't even think twice about it. You know, I mean, obviously I take all the precautions that we're advised to take. um, But, you know, you get there and you get tested and you're quarantined in your room room, uh, until the results uh, come back. And then, you know, then you can head over to the arena and they have, you know, protocols for where you can go and, you know, and all this. So it's doing the best that can be humanly done. You know, fighters have tested positive and Everything, but they're they're doing their best to limit um, and the exposure, so that if somebody does test positive, that it's not giving exposure to somebody else and spreading it. You know, so they can't control you know a, a fighter or any any person you know coming up with uh, the virus, but they can't control you know helping limit it and spread, and they're doing a fantastic job of that.
0: Right, I mean it's it's evident they they're, they're quick decisive actions and and even having backup plans for fights. Uh, I think there was a fighter that bounced out and within a few days they had announced the replacement form so yeah i am happy to see that they're they're taking it seriously and, and they're they're clearly on the right path for being able to keep putting out a product with without having lots of exposure what uh what is it like to be behind the scenes for that whole day of, of prep for a ufc fight
1: pretty boring you know um <laughs> so like what, what the day is is uh there there's a hotel around the corner from apex. So, uh, um, we check into the hotel. You have to be there by 7:30 30 a.m. They start testing at 6:45 a.m. So I'm usually there right at 6:45. And in the, you go in the lobby and they, they, when you, as soon as you walk in, they take your temperature. Um, and then uh, you go and you walk into the next station and there's a person that will, um, uh, take, give you the COVID test. Once you get the test, um, then you go to the front desk and your, uh, you get your key to your room. You're all, you know, they have your names already written in. So there's the hotel is shut down. There's nobody in the hotel except for people who are involved with the UFC event. Um, and then you go to your room and you stay in your room until they, they usually tell you a time based on what time the card's going to start and all that. Um, and so it's usually like around two o'clock Pacific time where they'll say, okay, uh, meet in the lobby anywhere between two and two fifteen. And at that point, um, they give you your credential if you have failed your test uh they have called you prior to that time and told you that you failed and there's a another hotel that then you get switched to uh where you're in, you're you're put into quarantine now if you live in las vegas then you can you know go you know go home and quarantine at home but if you're somebody that flew to las vegas and um did that then you know then you have to go to that quarantine hotel. So they basically have three hotels. They have one hotel that's for the fighters and their their corner people and that's it. They have a second hotel that is for the media, the officials um, and, and people that are involved, and that's it. And then they have the third hotel that is just a quarantine hotel where it's, you know, it's not used, but they, you know, they send anybody who, if they happen to test positive, down to that hotel before they can, you know, l- uh, be allowed to travel. So it's, it's, you know, really expensive, and you know people don't understand the cost that UFC is going to to put this on. I mean, they're basically buying out three hotels uh, for several days. Uh, for several days a week and now with the contender series going on the same thing is happening Uh, so they're doing that actually twice a week so it's pretty remarkable what they're doing the lengths they're going to uh, they're spending a ton of money uh, on tests on on getting the tests rushed um, everything else and uh, but you know i i think the result is you know a very smooth operation
0: clearly and it's it's pretty noble that they're putting people up to allow them to quarantine in a pretty expeditious and safe fashion they're, they're essentially protecting the the population in the airports and in the surrounding area from it as well for the positive
1: tests so right
0: that's a that's pretty interesting
1: yeah, no, you got to give them credit. I mean, they've done they've done a really good job, and I think you know you see them. You know, it, it, when it, I don't know if they show it on TV, but in the arena, you know, between fights, as soon as the fight is out of the ring, you know, there's a crew in there cleaning and sanitizing the ring, and they're all over everything. And um, at the press conference, you know, uh, now there's a microphone at every seat. So imagine that. You know, before they used to have two people in the room holding the mic up, and anybody wanted to ask, they'd walk to you. Now they have a microphone at every seat. And the person, uh, you know, who is taking the questions, you know, Dana or any of the fighters that are at the desk, when they walk off, they have somebody before the next person goes up. They have somebody go sanitize that table, sanitize that microphone, um, and do it. So, you know, they they're trying to think of everything that they can possibly think of, and you know, um, and, and then here's the good credit everybody's cooperating, you know, you're not seeing people walking around without their masks on, you know? um, So that, you know, that's really nice. You know, when the fighter gets up on the dais and he's talking to the media, you know, he takes his mask off. Um, But you may have heard a couple of weeks ago, you know, Dana said to me, I asked him a question, I have my mask on and, you know, Dana's hard of hearing in the one ear. And he said, you got to take that mask off so I can understand you. (laughs) And, um, but it was like, yeah, they, um, you know, so people are cooperating with it as well. So that, I think, makes it a lot better.
0: Sounds like it's a, an excruciatingly long day. I mean, you're starting at essentially at 6.45, not to include time to wake up and travel to get there. Right. But then you're going to, you know, late at night. I mean, you're that's that's like an 18, almost a 20-hour
1: day. It is, yeah. Like, for me, like, I'll get up, you know, I like, my day tomorrow, uh, no, it's going to be a little earlier tomorrow than last week. But, like, let's take last week at 2.52. um you know, the event, um, uh, the testing were the same time. So I woke up at five. Um, I left my house and drove over there. So I took a shower and had uh, had a cup of coffee. Then I drove over there and I checked into my room and I got there a little early. So they, they were set up to test a bit early. So I was in my room by like 640, um, at which point nothing. You're not allowed to leave the room. There's no food. So you, if you want food, you can bring it with you. Um, but that's it. And then you're done. You can't leave. So I try to bring some work with me so I can write something. Um, so then, you know, two o'clock. Uh, so last week was a little bit later, it was a half hour later. So two thirty, we went over to uh, Apex and they had a press meal set out um, and it was there for like a half an hour. So you could grab a bite to eat before. Then you get into the fights and now the fights are going on. The fights end, you know, roughly 10, a little past 10 Pacific time. Um, so when the fight ends, I have. So I had, like, at the end of the night, I had to write an O'Malley story. So when I write these what we call running stories, you know, as as the um, fight ends, I get it done before the next fight begins. So O'Malley got injured. I wrote 500 words. I had to do that in six minutes and have that turned in. Then the main event came on. So I I get the main event. So people want to know the results. So come to our site, you know, just to see who won. So I do a really quick story again, 500 words. I have to have that from the time that Buffer makes the announcement until um, I have six minutes to get that in. Then when that ended, then I had to do a video, um, you know, Yahoo has a betting partnership with MGM. So they're asking me to do a lot of betting stuff. So I had to do kind of a betting breakdown of the fight so i had to do that right afterwards then i had to go to the press conference so you go to the press conference then i had to write my column and then i wrote a follow-up column so by the time i left you know it was probably 11:30, and then i got home you know a little after midnight so you know from the time i got up till the time i actually and i went straight to bed when i get home you know what is that that's uh 12 you know that's 19 and a half hours and uh, it's a it's a long day, but you know it's um, like hey, th- I I thank God I have a job, right? Yeah. I'm in the I'm in a job where people are losing their jobs, and so I'm not going to complain about it because <laughs> I got a job and I can uh, pay my bills that way.
0: That's clearly a mentally and physically exhausting day for as much as you have to do, especially once it's go time and, and the fights start really rolling out. And when you've had the high profile fights that you cover, it's that's uh <laughs> That's mind-numbing. <laughs> um, upcoming is uh, 253 for UFC. What are your thoughts on Israel keeping his belt?
1: I like Adesanya funny to win the fight. I think that, you know, um, people who are down on him, they look at the Romero fight and they don't think of, you know, sort of what happened, right? I mean, Romero is an aggressive fighter and what did he do that day he did not throw punches Adesanya is a counter puncher and Adesanya was looking to counter punch Romero and Romero is not punching so they're both standing there looking at each other and you know that that's not going to be the case in this one because uh, there's no more attack oriented aggressive you know get off first fighter in the UFC than uh, Paulo Costa yeah. and so I think you know Costa is going to attack Adesanya look to. Um, finish him, you know, early, and that to me, that's the perfect style for Israel. Yeah. And you attack him, and he's going to sidestep and counter you. And so I, I, I think Adesanya wins the fight. Um, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to say he stops him. It wouldn't shock me if he stopped him, but I think this is a really good style matchup for Israel.
0: He's a he's a unique looking fighter because he doesn't look like he packs a lot of power. He he doesn't mm. look as imposing for his weight class, especially when you compare him to the physique of Paulo. Who's right. you know just again a physical specimen who's just muscle and power. Um, it, it's it's going to be a good fight. I, I think it might go to distance, distance as well.
1: But uh, yeah, I think when you look at it, it's just at, you know Adesanya's got great accuracy and he's got great timing. And when when he's matched with the right guy and, you know, I think Costa's the right guy, you know, then that that timing, it, make, it makes him look like, you know, he's you know, he's really lighting you up with you know, power. And I think that, you know, to me is like the, um, the genius of this match, you know, because people love to see a slug fest And I yeah. think they're going to see that uh, where Costa's is going to come in and then he's going to take a lot of punishment uh, uh, after he throws his stuff.
0: Yeah, we'll see how. uh how good his chin is, because as you pointed out, Israel's got almost pinpoint precision accuracy. It's it's kind of scary. Yeah. Um, I've uh, I've taken almost an hour of your I'm sure extremely busy time, and I greatly appreciate that. Maybe I'll try and get you back on after the uh, after the Stanley Cup Finals, and can talk some more about go that. nice go. <laughs> I agree. That's who I'm rooting for. My team's not even in it, so I'm pushing for either uh, the Bolts because they got green or the Bolts because they have Coleman or the Islanders because they have green and, and the Knights, I'm just a fan of the Knights. So I hope, hope one of those three teams wins it.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Hope I'm with you. Although yeah. I'm, I'm only, I'm only for one of those three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have been, uh, anything you want to plug The anywhere people can find your stuff aside from Yahoo? Uh,
1: obviously my stuff is on Yahoo sports. So, uh, just search my name on Yahoo Sports and you'll find it. Uh, if, you, if you find one of my uh, articles, if you click my name, uh, that'll take you to my archive so you can see all that. And just fo- you can follow me on, on Twitter at Kevin I, K-E-V-I-N-I, or on Instagram at Kevin Ioli. I,
0: again, I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for coming on.
1: You got it, brother. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.